Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. If you're a regular listener, you know I am obsessed with coffee. My love affair with coffee started over 25 years ago. I drink it daily, I drink it early, and I drink it often. On a typical day, I'll have around five to six cups. Now, if I'm going to drink so much of something, I want to feel confident that it's good for my health. So you can imagine how freaked out I was when I found out that many coffee beans actually contain mold and microscopic toxins. Mold can form on coffee beans when they are grown, stored, or transferred in a moist, warm environment, and the supply chain of coffee makes it particularly susceptible to mold and the toxic chemicals called mycotoxins. According to some analysis, up to 50% of beans tested positive for mycotoxins, which can cause serious liver and kidney issues in high doses. Mycotoxins are almost impossible to see or taste, unlike the mold you might see from water damage in your house. And the effect that mycotoxin exposure has on humans isn't entirely clear, and there's a level of uncertainty that I, as a coffee lover, am just not comfortable with. I believe in compromise, but not when it comes to what I'm putting into my body. When I drink something so often, I want to know that I'm giving myself all the best possible benefits and not ingesting anything that is going to potentially negate all the other good stuff I'm doing. And once I learned about all the bad stuff like mold, mycotoxins, and other contaminants in coffee, I knew it was time to work on a better product. And I started asking myself the following questions. Would it be possible to source a USDA certified organic coffee that was high in polyphenols and had no mold, mycotoxins, pesticides? pesticides, and heavy metals? And would we be able to test for all of the above? Could we find a coffee that meets all of our aforementioned standards and actually tastes great? No one wants to drink healthy coffee that tastes like crap. We want it to taste good. It took over a year, but we found a solution that delivers in full. Clean Coffee Plus. Our brand new coffee is handled in a way that reduces the risk of fungal growth and is rigorously tested for mold and mycotoxins, along with other nasties like pesticides and heavy metals. The testing that we do gives me confidence that the product I am drinking multiple times a day has nothing to hide. We test for an exhaustive battery of contaminants, four heavy metals, 10 microbial tests, 21 mycotoxins, 300 plus pesticides, and 20 solvents. I absolutely love our new Clean Coffee Plus, and I know you will too. So go to shop.mindbuddygreen.com backslash coffee20 to get 20% off your first order. You are going to love this coffee, and I really hope you try it. Do you know someone with a sensory superpower? Maybe they have the ability to describe all the subtle undertones that exist in an apple when you just see it as red. Maybe they have the keen sense of smell or taste of a sommelier. This person probably has synesthesia or bonus senses, just like today's guest, Maureen Seberg. Maureen actually has several forms of synesthesia and has written about them for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Oprah Magazine, and more. She has even been presented on synesthesia at the American Synesthesia Association Conference at Vanderbilt University and at NYU, Yale, and Tibet House. And today she's on the show to discuss how we can all better tap into our senses and how we may be able to smell our way to optimal health. It is a fascinating topic and I think you'll enjoy it. So we've talked about the senses before on the show. We had Gretchen Rubin on, but your new book goes beyond the basics in terms of our everyday interaction 
with our senses. And you're getting into the superpowers. Can you explain the superpowers that potentially lie within us? Well, the good news is the senses are completely plastic. You can learn to smell things you haven't smelled before. You can learn to see colors you haven't seen before. These uh, findings are all laboratory-based. Um, they're not just anecdotal. But I went out and I found the super smellers to give testimony and the super tasters and everyone functioning on a really high level. And perhaps the most fascinating one is Joy Milne, the retired Scottish nurse. She has a global reputation for being able to smell Parkinson's disease. She detected this musky scent on her husband six years before he was diagnosed with the illness. And, um, you know, he'd be freshly showered and he'd smell off. And uh, after he was diagnosed, she started going to support group meetings and noticed the patients in those support group meetings smelled like her husband did. So she brought it to the attention of researchers and they tested it, identified the molecular biomarkers, and now she has collaborated on a swab test for Parkinson's. So um, Joy, of course, is an extraordinary case. She's somebody who knew she had an ability, advocated for herself, but I'm hoping that lots of people recognize themselves in the book and say, you know, I know when my kids have a stomach virus, I can smell it on their breath. Or I know when my dog has a flea allergy. I, I think we're dismissing a lot of these things that we already sense. Well, I think about this two ways. One, as medicine continues to evolve and technology gets better, will we have technology if, if that can identify these scents that are potentially keys into unlocking early disease? And on the other hand, what are the limitations we're putting ourselves where we're a lot more powerful than we know in terms of our senses and how we tap into that? So I know that's kind of two questions there, but two, two different directions. Which way do you... Well, the second one first, I've, so in the last 10 years or so, they've discovered new upper ends of the senses, being able to detect a single photon of light. They used to think we could smell 10,000 things. They know it's a trillion or more now. So we definitely do have more sensory real estate than we're using. And again, it's plastic. But to your first question, you know, the medical anthropologist to whom I dedicate the book, William C. Bushell, calls humans soft tissue high technology. And when he looked at all this sensory research in all the senses, he just said, we are the finest technology on the planet. Hands down, there's no machine that can do what we do. And in fact, we're beating dogs and laboratory rats in some research. Humans can follow a scent trail. And you you are one of these people who is a, you have these superpowers. I do, actually. So that is part of the reason I was interested in this. I wanted to find all the other people. And I sort of wanted to shout it from the rooftops that 
if I can be discovered to be a super color seer, which is what I am, I have synesthesia and I am something called a tetrachromat. I had my functionality proven at Arizona State University. It means that I can see as many as a hundred times more color than is normal. But I thought, you know, if I found this out about myself in middle age because science is just catching up, how many more of us are there out there? I think there are lots of people who can awaken to these abilities. So can you speak a little bit more about how you discovered this and what this looks like in the in the day-to-day for you? Yeah, so I was always a little peculiar about color. I would have polite disagreements with people about the hues of things. So someone would say, oh, look at that beautiful red cardinal. And I'd sort of scratch my head and say, it looks vermilion to me. It has orange tones. And for a while I thought, I'm such a verbal person. Maybe I'm just a color vocabulary nerd, right? And people are generalizing and they see it the way I do too, but they just don't have the word for it. Well, I heard a podcast called Radio Lab, I'm sure you're very familiar with, and um, they interviewed an interior designer back in 2013 who said she had a trait called tetrachromacy. And it sounded like they could have been interviewing me, all these polite disagreements about color, huge color vocabulary. And I called her doctor. And interestingly, he's, he wanted to know if I had a lot of colorblind men in my family. And I do. And I thought, isn't that strange? Because aren't we talking about enhanced color ability? But it turns out in single families where this genetic anomaly exists, the way the genes combine and recombine, you'll get colorblind men and you'll get tetrachromat women. So in the day-to-day, it means I'm seeing more colors. So those polite disagreements I've always had, the red cardinal versus the vermilion cardinal, it's because I'm seeing it with more specificity. The city. I'm seeing the in-between tones that other people aren't picking up. So for example, those watching on YouTube, I'm wearing, a, I think, a royal blue shirt. Does this look royal blue to you? It does. It does. Uh, it's a little lighter than royal blue to me. I would, I would uh, put it in that family, though. So we do agree. And so how many people have these superpowers amongst all the senses? You know, that's research that I dream they'll do soon. Certainly, I think there's one indicator. I was surprised, even as a synesthete and someone who wrote about synesthesia for 10 years at Psychology Today, that synesthesia is present in all these super sensors, be they the tea sommelier, the wine steward, Um, super tasters, if you talk to them and ask them if they have synesthesia, they all do. So if synesthesia is present in 4% of the general population, what we believe, we need to look there. What is the clinical definition of synesthesia? So synesthesia is bonus senses. Synesthetes will 
experience the same sensory response to a stimulus that someone who doesn't have synesthesia will, but they'll get an added layer on top of it. And the example I always use is if I'm looking at a numeral five on the front page of the New York Times, I know it's black ink on a beige background like everyone, but I also get navy blue just above it like an aura. So there's almost a cellophane layer on top of everything. And uh, I think a lot of people have thought, oh, synesthete substitute a sense. But we don't. We, We have the same sense. It's just layered. So you mentioned the sommeliers. It makes me think these are people who work very hard. There's a lot of training, a lot of education. Is it more nature or nurture? But can this can this be learned if a lot of Psalms work very hard for their credentials? That's a great point. You know, I think it is nature and nurture because both of the sommeliers I spoke with had innate ability, were drawn to the profession because they enjoyed it. They were good at it. But for sure, their exposure to lots of flavors and scents along the way has helped them refine it. Is this something also that as we grow older, we just kind of become stiff adults and, you know, kids are in many ways bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and open to all all possibilities? Are, are kids more likely to have these abilities and potentially not be aware and then lose them over time as they grow jaded with the world? I believe that's really possible just Uh, Again, just anecdotally in this case, it's something that ought to be studied. We're at the dawn of a sensory renaissance. There's so much money floating around in perceptual laboratories right now for AI, robotics, virtual mixed, augmented reality. But when they test humans to create realistic experiences, we're off the charts every time. So I think if children were identified early and maybe even placed in Montessori settings, Montessori teaches the senses much better. Waldorf schools teach the senses much better. If if we were to cultivate this in young people and give them the vocabulary, you know, scientists have told me if if I did weren't so geeky about the names of colors, if I didn't have such a large color vocabulary, the genes might not have even become functional. So you have to have a category in your mind for something for it to flower. And I believe if we create pathways in children's minds and keep them open and seeking and and also acknowledge these things. I I have a, a college friend. I was, he was a good sounding board for the book. And I, I, started telling him about the sommeliers and everyone. And he said, you know, my teenage daughter is a little strange. She smells all her food before she eats it. And I said, that's wonderful. You know, instead of seeing it as strange and teasing her about it, she may be a nose in the perfume industry in the future. My daughter just looks at it and decides she doesn't like it. But I wonder if her sense of taste is very sensitive because the super tasters I talked to say the trade-off with it is some things really don't taste good to them at all. It's because they're, everything is so flavorful to them. So it's kind of a trade-off. So let's take it a step further. 
What about remote sensing? People not being in the same place or space of the quote unquote stimulus and being able to sense it. You know, I'm a serious journalist like you. I have my had my doubts, but I have seen this demonstrated and it's mind blowing. So this, I believe, is the frontier. It's not a fringe. I just came from the International Remote Viewing Association conference in Charlottesville, Virginia, and saw this demonstrated over and over. Bruce Grayson and Jim, uh, we've had them on the show. Wow, yeah. I mean, Joe McMonagall, all of them. But they have a whole division dedicated to this at UVA. Yes. It really seems that our senses are powerful enough that we don't need to be in the same place or the same era of time to perceive things. And I have a theory about that. Now that they've said, oh, we can see, they're admitting it's proven in laboratories at the Rockefeller University. We can see light at the level of a single photon. We are smelling things through quantum tunnels and vibrational changes in molecules. We are operating, you know, we're not outside the cosmos or the quantum world looking in like vulgar beings. We are actually that refined. And that's what the new research is proving. And if our traditional senses are operating on that minuscule scale, it's not too big of a leap to think about some quantum strangeness that helps us perceive things beyond what's nearby. You mentioned some mind-blowing examples. What, what, are, what are some that come to mind? Well, here's an example. I, I had the pleasure of talking to remote viewer number one, Joe McMonagall, at the Monroe Institute while down in Virginia. And he was recounting for me that the Japanese people now know about Empress Himiko, a third century shamanic empress who was legend until he was asked to view her. And he showed me evidence, um, photographs of the burial mound he found for her, her winter palace, her summer palace. Now, this legend that only had three lines of historic text in China, not even in Japan because she had been an ally of China in the third century, but there was very little written about her and it was mostly oral tradition. Now they have archeological sites. So because of him, they were able to find, to find this person. Yes. To confirm she indeed existed. And I'm assuming he doesn't live in Japan or China. He just said. No, 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 they flew him in. I mean, he didn't even have to be flown in. But he ended up going there to see the sites that he identified. Wow. You know, I remember, well, I think as a kid, for some reason, at least this is the assumption I'm making. When I was growing up, there seemed to be a lot of missing missing children, kidnappings. I think, I don't think there is many. That's, I hope I'm right. And every once in a while, you would hear about someone being identified or found uh, through someone who had quote unquote ESP. Yes. So is this a cousin having ex, is this the same thing extrasensory perception ESP as being like a soup because it's all about sensory Yes well there is some overlap but professional remote viewers kind of take umbrage 
that they are psychics, you know, like the government military types, because there's a system or a few systems they have for getting into the zone to begin to sense. And they do things like write a fake name down for themselves, write a series of random numbers, write a series of random shapes. And they're doing something that primes the mind to begin to sense a target. And um, I think there are people born with natural ability. I've seen that demonstrated. But remote sensors will tell you that anyone can be trained to do this. Even though they're sort of this special club, they're not exclusive in that way. They don't believe they have superpowers. They believe they have training. Hmm. So how does one distinguish between someone who has real superpowers and a charlatan looking to take advantage of someone? That's the rub, isn't it? Because, you know, as the saying goes, one bad apple is all it takes. I've sort of explored these types of people for a few years getting ready for the book. And I, my one of my personal standards is if you find that these folks are doing pro bono work for missing children, police departments, and people without resources, I think there's more um, possibility that they are real. Interesting. And so what is this all, in terms of remote sensing, what does this say about consciousness and our theory of consciousness? It's incomplete because, well, here's something really interesting. I interviewed Ed May, who ran Stargate for years out at Stanford Research Institute, and he gave me a clue. He said all of his top remote viewers had synesthesia. And the, now that Stargate is supposedly ended, <laughs> officially ended, and he has a private laboratory where he still studies these things, he said he only hires synesthetes. So there's something about the hyperconnectivity of the synesthetic mind that allows the remote sensing. And perhaps they're also more primed for sensing. Most people call them viewers, but if you talk to them, and I've tried it myself, you might get a change in temperature on your skin while you're considering a target, like the warmth of sunshine, or you might smell something or think you hear something. So it's not just what they're getting in the mind's eye. They sit with themselves and they consider every impression. And all those impressions build a collage for the target. So what is, I'm familiar with the laboratory. What does the laboratory do that you mentioned? Oh, Ed May's laboratory. I think it's called the Laboratory for Fundamental Research. And he's still studying synesthesia and remote viewing. Got it. So you mentioned temperature and something that immediately came to mind. People who I've met who, in my view, are, are, are gifted with maybe intuition, they tend to like be really like hot when you touch them. There's almost like an energy, like when you when you hug them. And I've had the experience with a couple of shamans or healers, like there's almost like a, an energy, a heat in their body. I have heard an anecdote where a chi master in New York must walk around with his hands behind his back because if he touches you, he you can blister. Huh. 
but I have not had the pleasure of meeting him yet. And you're making me more curious about it. So what do you think this all says around our day-to-day interactions, the energy we give off, the smiles we give to strangers, how we carry ourselves? What, 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 what does this all say about how we interact with humans in our day-to-day? I think that it means every gesture counts. And I, I discovered that the super sensors I was talking with were all exquisitely emotionally sensitive people what you would call an HSP or a highly sensitive person. And I don't think that we can separate emotional sensitivity from the traditional senses. I think all of it goes together. And uh, we need to make the world safe for both emotional sensitivity and the traditional senses in order for people to take these impressions seriously and and feel comfortable exploring it. There's no such thing as too sensitive in my mind. She mentioned the world becoming safe and we've all heard the phrase, you know, the smell of fear. It's not really a smell for some people, but it's this very strong gut feeling that maybe someone's up to no good or they're in potentially danger or they they need to walk away from something quickly. How do you think about that and the role our senses play in fear? I think there is such a thing. I think the book, The Gift of Fear, established a lot of that. You know, it's almost like that we can follow a scent trail like a hound. They know that now. They've literally made people follow scent trails. Why do we ascribe more instinct? And I think what you're talking about is really instinct sense, right? Yes. Why do we ascribe more of it to the rest of the animal kingdom? which I love, I'm a real nature buff, when we ourselves are super predators. So there's this disconnect that went on, and I trace it to the 19th century, when Paul Broca, the neuroanatomist, falsely claimed that humans had small olfactory bulbs. And uh, it just wasn't true. And it became a popular theme, and these were Victorian kind of repressive times. Uh, And uh, there was this desire to separate humans from the rest of the animal kingdom as as though we were somehow above that kind of thing. But but we're not. We're animals. And, uh, you know, they're finding that the people who live out of doors, the hunter-gatherers, there's a great study on Malaysian hunter-gatherers, They actually tested their senses and found that they could smell more, like they could identify more scents. They could identify more colors. These are tribal people without traditional educations, but they're they're living out nature. And you know, the EPA did a study and found that we in the West, North Americans and Europeans, are spending 90% of our lives indoors. So the, is that the answer? Is it getting outside more? To, is this the answer to the question? Because I think everyone listening is saying, how, do, how can I get better here? How can I supercharge my senses? Yeah, I think if there's an opportunity to be outside, take it. You know, you don't have to go uh, to Malaysia and live off the land, although it would be nice. But uh, the more we're outside, if you think about it, I'm sitting in kind of a nine by 12 office right now. 
what are the parameters for my hearing? Although there was a little ambient noise I apologize for. You know, it's four walls. Were I to step outside, there would be miles of sound to my left, right, front and back. Temperature change, the sound of birds. So even if you think about it in terms of my little office space versus stepping outside, the amount of stimulation and the openness is so vastly different. So it sounds like when we're going about our day, we're outside, almost taking a, a mindfulness-based approach, try to be aware of the sounds. Are you smelling anything? Uh, what's around you? Try to focus in on a leaf or just... Sure. I call what you're describing, you're so intuitive. I call it a sense stop. Just, you know, we can't remember what we ate for lunch some days because what's the next appointment and what happened yesterday? If we literally are mindful and stop at each possible moment of sense, like literally stop and smell the roses, I know that's cliche, but it exists for a reason. It's overused, so it's lost its meaning. But please reconsider it. Take time to savor your meals. Uh, create beautiful soundscapes for your home and office that can act as a barrier to harmful noise. And um, in the last chapter of the book, I give 10 steps to grow your senses based on the testimony of the super sensors and the scientists. And they're very straightforward and enjoyable, although they're not obvious. Talk through a couple if you can. Yeah, like, okay, one I think is really important is to pair sensory things that you want to experience more fully. So if you're in a farmer's market and they have magnolia flowers, and you think, ah, oh, I wish I could smell that all afternoon and recall it when I need to. Think of the magnolia and think of something beautiful like a full moon or a sound and pair them in your mind. And it acts like the memory palace or a mnemonic. And you will find you can recall it better later and more vividly. And just like your wonderful mission is to help people be healthier and enjoy more. I think that's what the senses are about. It can vivify our lives. In terms of memories, which sense is the most powerful? Why I'm asking is, I think we all hear music and there's certain there's a certain song that takes us immediately back to a place. Why is that? Is there something special about music and hearing specifically or? I mean, the senses are very tied to memory. And as I'm with you on sound, for me, it's sound. I can remember the day a certain song came out and what I was doing the first time I heard it. But they say the strongest one for memory is smell, that it goes straight to our memory banks. And that must be a survival thing, right? I think it makes sense. I think we all, there's the cliche of grandma's cookies or mom's lasagna or whatever the comfort food. Proust and the Madeline too, right? So yeah, taking him back to visits with his aunt. So I believe another step you asked for a couple, meditation, once again, is so powerful for opening the senses. It lowers stress hormones that can damage some uh, sensory apparatuses. 
such as lowering eye pressure for glaucoma patients, making sure your inner ear is healthy. You want fewer stress hormones, but it also opens the pathways, creates a stillness so that you can notice the scent in the air or a change in temperature on your skin. Any sense is what I mean. You will notice it more if you're still. In terms of meditation, is there a certain type of meditation or frequency? I recommend a daily practice. And in the book, I quote from a specific tantric reading. In Lama Tupten Yeshe's Introduction to the Tantra, the transformation of desire, he gives us a visualization of the Buddhist deity Manjushri, who has the sword of discriminating awareness in his right hand and Buddhist teachings in text in his left. And by associating ourselves with his discriminating awareness, thinking of ourselves in terms of deity or divine, no matter your tradition. You can choose someone of great discriminating awareness from any tradition. If you meditate on them and you associate yourself with what is fine and what is careful and what is powerful and what is good, you will grow in that direction. It's a mindset. And in um, Lama Yeshe's um, teachings, he, he says, our mind will actually become the mind of the deity and our ordinary sensory experiences, what we see, hear, taste, and so forth, will be transformed into the blissful enjoyments of the deity. This is not a fairy tale, he says. Such transformations have been the experience of countless tantric meditators. You know, before science proved the upper end of these senses, adept meditators from Tibet, China, and beyond had been reporting experiences with tiny bits of light in their meditations. So Rockefeller didn't prove that until 2016 because we needed to invent a machine that could fire a single photon at a retina, and the people sat still in head braces. But through the ages, you'll find writings of adept meditators who were saying, I see tiny bits of light. So it also makes you more synesthetic. And in my opinion, synesthesia is the linchpin to all these abilities. And the good news is, the father of modern synesthesia research really believes this is not a private exclusive club. We are all synesthetes. It's just that some of us get a conscious bleed. But the inner workings, he says, these pairings that go on or these associations, a sound evoking a memory is the way it works behind the scenes for all of us. And one example I like to give of that is why do we all say we we have the blues or we're green with envy or purple with rage? Somewhere along the line, we all decided those were the colors that we would use 
in our language. I'm curious, is there a sense that culturally we're kind of unknowingly destroying in our day-to-day? That we are destroying our senses, you mean? Yeah, like is there one specifically in our in our behavior that we're kind of weakening because of our, our modern world and our, our day-to-day? Well, I'm a little bit eye-centric because I'm, I'm a lab rat myself and I'm being studied. All this time in front of the computer and the blue blue light is not the best thing for our eyes. And I've done some ergonomic training where they teach you to look far away and then back at the screen. I think all the senses can atrophy in our little boxes. And to get outdoors is uh, the best thing we can possibly do. Have you ever come across a, a giant in all five senses? Any Anyone have all five or maybe a few? I would say some of the llamas, the Tibetan llamas, are very exquisite that way. From these deity yogas they practice where they associate themselves with such powerful beings. It's a very astute question because you can't have everything, where would you put it sort of thing. If one has a super ability to see, does it mean that the others follow? Certainly in synesthesia, if you have one synesthesia, you're 50% more likely to have the next and so forth. But I, I think you're pointing to some research that really should be done. So of all the research, of all the case studies, what was the most mind-blowing to you that stood out above the rest while, while you were researching and writing the book? I think Joy Milne, the super smeller in um, Scotland. You know, one woman's love and concern for her husband. Like, what's wrong with him? He doesn't smell right. Maybe we should go to the doctor. And just remembering and being vocal and smelling it on other people and wanting to help them too. And you know, what really blew me away, first of all, that's astonishing because due to her research, they can now swab test you on the back of your neck and running down. Wow. And tell you you have Parkinson's as many as 10 years prior to its presentation in you because that cruel disease robs half the the brain neurons before you really notice it and then you're 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 basically in big trouble. But now they can intervene. It's not a cure yet but it's a great early intervention. And when I was speaking with her, I said, what are you working on now, Joy? You know, we were Zooming. And she said, oh, I can smell COVID. And I said, please explain. And she first noticed it on a university campus in January of 2020, I believe it was. And the world was not fully aware yet. It was probably around, but, you know, we hadn't all noticed it yet. And I said, what does it smell like? And she said, apple cider plus infection. It's, she said, it's the weirdest thing. Like, why apple cider? So she didn't know she was smelling COVID. She ran into a bunch of international students on a university campus just back from China and thought, that's really odd, apple cider and infection. She files it away. She picks on up scents on people all the time. And then she caught COVID herself and smelled apple cider on her skin. And she said, oh, that's what it was. Do you know they're working on swab tests now? 
with her at the University of Manchester. They're going to isolate the biomarkers of the odors from it. And uh, we won't have the the stick up our nose anymore. It'll be a simple. I think that's fascinating. And, you know, if you think about there, the implications are, are meaningful. You take one person's superpower and then you're translating it for the masses in a way that it's so elegant isn't it it's simple it's pure and her empathy for people her love for her husband her empathy for people in the world is what drives her she's retired but she's still in laboratories trying to smell cancer trying to smell tuberculosis in terms of early disease detection we're still talking about smell does that translate to are there other senses where the where there you have similar stories where people are able to detect early disease through sight? The gentlemen who are working with me and my eyes claim that it evolved so that it's only present in women, tetrachromacy. It evolved so that a mom could detect fever in a baby early and could also see flushing or blanching and other people to succeed socially and take a kind of a, a test of what's going on around them. So they think that tetrachromats, there are a few of us, would be able to walk out into a crowd and detect who has a fever. Doesn't necessarily mean they have coronavirus, although in this environment, right? But they they believe we'll, we'll see the difference in skin tone. Wow. So I, I hope there are more... Uh, applications because I'd love to help in the way that Joy Milne is helping. Yeah, that, that's my, you know, my, my closing question. Obviously, we want people to, to pick up the book, but what, what is your hope? Where do you want this conversation to go? What do you want people to change in their everyday lives? I really want, first of all, as we stand in, at this crossroads with a potential transhuman future. I just want people not- I'm assuming you're talking about AI. Well, I mean brain chips and so forth, invasive things. But yeah, AI, I mean, all of it. We valorize so much outside of ourselves in this society. I want everyone to know they are magnificent. And I mean that sincerely. Every human being is soft tissue, high technology, the finest technology on the planet. It's not about the robots. We're much finer than we know. Amen. Maureen, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and bless you for all the people you're making healthy. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you.